1: Hi, I'm Carla Appy, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I recently spoke with Hallam Stevens about his really great new book, Life Out of Sequence, a data-driven history of bioinformatics. This came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2013. I really loved this book, and one of the things that I really loved about it is that it's satisfying on two different levels. If you come to the book as a specialist in, someone who works in, or someone who just has a deep and abiding interest in the history of the life sciences and perhaps the history of the relationship between the life sciences and computing more specifically, then this is going to be a very satisfying historical and ethnographic account of the emergence of a kind of a new sort of relationality between computers and biology, data and biology, and the sorts of new objects, new really literally new epistemic objects that emerge from that relationality and that transformative kind of relationship over time and in space. But at the same time, if you come to the book without a pre-existing interest in or background in the life sciences and or computing, it's still really, really satisfying on a number of levels. It changed the way I thought about the history and ontology and really the being and the knowledge production involved in databases. My understanding of this before coming to this book was I didn't even realize how superficial my understanding had been. And it was really transformative, at least for me, to look into the architecture and the technologies through the book of knowledge production in this really, really new way, relatively speaking, in the life sciences and think about how that extends to other areas of knowledge making that are not history of science or medicine or biology. The book is also really thoughtful about the ways that space, time, technologies, modes of organization Images shape how we know about the world and shape the kinds of objects that come out of disciplinary and transdisciplinary attempts to know about the world. So it works on a level that's beyond um, just the history of the life sciences. Though it's very satisfying on the level of the history of a subfield of the life sciences. Um, even so, so I really enjoyed the book. I got a lot out of it. It was just probably clear from this opening. I uh, hope you enjoy the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. I sure did. We're here today to talk with Hallam Stevens about his new book, Life Out of Sequence, a Data-Driven History of Bioinformatics. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Hallam, and thanks for not only making time to talk with me, but making time to talk with me on a precious Saturday morning. I really appreciate it, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you about the book, so thank you.
0: you. Thanks very much, Carla. It's uh, it's nice to talk to you. Glad to be here.
1: So can you start us off by saying just a little bit about yourself and your background and specifically, how did you come to the field of history of science? It's a field that uh, many of us get to kind of obliquely along the way. Did you start off um, as an undergrad or as a grad student knowing that this was definitely what you wanted to do or how did you find your way here?
0: Yeah, well, it feels like a very long story um, now, but uh, yeah, so as an, I started as an undergraduate in the history of science, but I, I guess I didn't uh, start out that, that way exactly. I actually, um, I started out studying physics. That's what I thought I wanted to do, and uh, I did quite a lot of physics uh, as an undergraduate and um, had a lot of friends in college who were um, pre-med actually, and they were taking this weird and strange subject to me uh, called history of science and uh, I decided to look into it more and uh, I guess I took a couple of classes and I uh, sort of never looked back Um, in a sense. I had always been interested in both the natural sciences and in history and this for me was a way to combine both of those interests and it, and it has continued to be a kind of way of combining my uh, ongoing interest in the sciences and the sort of development of the sciences with my interest in history. And so, um, yeah, it's continued to be a kind of passion for me over the last sort of 15 years, I guess.
1: Great. So the book that we're talking about today is, briefly put, A History and Ethnography of Bioinformatics. And it's also much, much more than that. But we'll get to the details over the course of the conversation. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came from the general field of history of science and um, there from, you mentioned physics, to this particular mm-hmm. topic? What brought you to bioinformatics as a focus of study?
0: Yeah, I um... So, right, as, as I was saying, yes, my, I started in history of physics, and I, right, I guess I, mostly what I pursued um, in even my master's studies was thinking about history of physics um, mixed in with a little bit of history of technology. Um, but I, I guess one thing that was really, uh, in a sense, maybe transformative for me was Lily Kay's book, um, who wrote The Book of Life, uh, and I guess after reading that it suddenly seemed like there was a huge amount of interesting uh, stuff to say um, about the history of biology um, that related it to things that I you know, felt that I, I knew a little bit about about um, the relationship to physics itself, the relationship to computing, the relationship to the Cold War um, and so I guess that was what sort of sparked my uh, transition or my sort of new interest in the history of biology rather than in uh, the history of physics. Um, and so, I mean, one of the things that I think is sort of fairly clear in the book thats that there is a kind of, what I see is a kind of, uh, I guess, a, a similarity between what happened in physics uh, in the sort of second half, or let's say right after World War II, um, with the sort of growing use of computers uh, and uh, the sort of big, the sort of big science that happened to that happened to physics uh, after World War II, uh, and what has happened to biology um, more recently, uh, and what is continuing to happen to biology—the kind of uh, you know, more people, more interdisciplinary teams—all the stuff that um, this book is really about—is, um, I think, you know, there are s- some similarities. I'm not saying that it followed the exact same trajectory, but there are some similarities between what happened in physics right after World War II and and this story that that I tell, that I tell part of. Um, and so, um, for that reason, I guess, uh, you know, computers uh seem to me to be at at the core of this um at the core of both this transition um that happened in physics um and this transition that has happened in uh, biology um and that is ongoing uh, i think in in biology um and you know the transformation of the way people do work uh, in in both of these fields and so uh in a sense um that's that's the connection for me between um, thinking about physics uh, and thinking about um, bioinformatics in a sense. I mean, I use bioinformatics here as a kind of uh, shorthand in a, in, in a way for thinking about the variety of ways in which computers have uh, transformed biological thinking and biological work. Um, so, yeah, so I think there's, there's, there is a kind of in a sense, uh, kind of, um, yeah, a, a sort of conceptual continuity in my thinking about this, uh, moving from uh, physics to now thinking about the transformation of biology.
1: Absolutely. And I think that comes out really nicely in the book and certainly in the first couple of chapters of the book. So right. makes a lot of sense. Right. So this started out as a graduate project. Is that right?
0: That's true that's true, Uh, that is, that is, this is my dissertation project. Um,
1: So can you talk a little bit about that transition in moving this from a dissertation to a book? Um, Were there any notable aspects of that process or any ways that the way you were conceptualizing the work that you were doing in the project changed um, or the the ways that the written aspect of the project changed um, in in significant ways that are worth mentioning?
0: Yeah, so the, the first thing that I would say is that, um, my, my PhD supervisor always encouraged me to see this, uh, as a book. And I think that was great. Um, uh, my supervisor was Peter Gallison. He, I mean, he, um, always talked about it. He said, you know, how's your book going? Right. That was the language that he would use. And I think that, that seems like, (laughs) um, uh, sort of silly thing just about choice of words, but I think it's actually important, right, that you always uh, see it as a book, um, uh, even from the kind of beginning your dissertation research, and, and that made a big difference to me. That I don't think that necessarily meant that um, what came out uh, of the dissertation was in any sense ready to be published um I think it just prepares you perhaps uh for the fact that um you know this is this is the final aim um so yeah in fact um as I expect is true with most people there was a it was a long um yeah transition uh, or a lot of work to do between getting it from a dissertation to a book and a lot of that was figuring out um that kind of uh a sort of structure, I guess. One thing that was particularly difficult uh, in this case was that um, well in the hist- I guess if you're writing a history book, uh, a sort of a strictly historical narrative um, there's an obvious order in which to put things right, um, it's the order of chronology uh, and you tell the story from the beginning to the end usually, right, I mean that's the way history is usually done um, uh, this uh, again, as as I'm sure we'll talk about more, is not really a. I mean, it mixes history and ethnography, um, but also it's it's not really. It doesn't really start at one particular point and end you know, in 2010 or something like that. It actually um, deliberately tells a series of what I like to think of as parallel stories. Um, that range from uh, you know, the 19, roughly the 1960s right up to uh, the, the 2000s. Um, and so, then the question is, well, how do you put these together? Right? How do you organize these uh, into a narrative that makes sense and that is going to be the most logical and that is going to be the most persuasive um, and that is going to be the most interesting for the reader? And that took a lot of thinking and it took a lot of, um, it took a lot of tries, I would say. It's just reorganizing the material, pulling parts out of some chapters, sticking them in other chapters, um, reorganizing the order of the chapters and trying to develop some kind of an arc, uh, through the book, um, that, yeah, that, um, that made sense. Um, uh, that was not necessarily a chronological, um, uh, and yeah, that, that was I think really the main challenge and I and um you know, I,
1: yeah,
0: it took a long time.
1: <laughs> For many of us it does. But I think right. um it's I think um among the people who I've talked to for the channel and for new books in East Asian Studies as well, it's really interesting to hear um, There's th- th- the differences between the kinds of people who go through a graduate program being told that the dissertation is different from the book, and then those of us who go through thinking of the dissertation as a book. And so it's actually, I think, a really interesting process to compare um, across experiences and something maybe that listeners who are going through this process for themselves can keep in mind as, you know, kind of an option to know that people do things both ways can be kind of liberating in a sense. So you've mentioned um, that the project does incorporate, and I, th- and I think a really beautiful way, both history and ethnography in terms of your methodology for understanding bioinformatics, both um, in terms of a historical narrative, but also in terms of the, the practices right now. So can you talk about that a little bit? Um, specifically, what kind of ethnographic fieldwork was most important for you in, in creating this project? Can you talk about the ethnography that you did?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, right. I mean, this was another real challenge of of the book um, to figure out how to weave these two things uh, together in a in a way that was uh, that made sense um, and that it doesn't wouldn't come across as uh, sort of jarring, I guess, um, because I think um, at some points, uh, you know, I think that the manuscript. Um, you know, you would sort of talk about the history, and then at some point you would switch to—I would switch to a very detailed description of you know, something that I saw or um, you know, participated in in a lab. And you know, it was—it didn't really make—it didn't. These two things didn't sit side by side necessarily very easily. Um, so weaving them together was a was a was a challenge. So that's right. So that's that's one thing that um, that I had to work on a lot in the transition to the book uh, as well. Um, in terms of the field work more generally maybe I can I think it's um, let me just talk about how I how I got started with the field work and um, how it, how it kind of developed. Um so actually the first thing I did was to uh, take a class uh, in um, computational biology uh, at, at MIT actually um, and uh, you no know, I mean I think that In a sense, uh, I really see this kind of work. um, There's a kind of analogy here between historians who maybe work on East Asia or other parts of the world and have to learn those languages. Um, I had to learn the languages of basically computing. um, Bioinformatics and computational biology, uh, not only – I mean, the the main thing that they do is they – they look, use very specific programming languages, uh, and I had to learn those. I had to become essentially uh, fluent in those languages uh, in order to do uh, this kind of this kind of fieldwork. So the first thing I did was take a class, uh, learn some of these basic ideas, uh, and then um, at the end of that class, uh, one of the professors. Um, Uh, I asked him whether I could basically um, sit in his uh, lab. And I I think I tell a little bit of the story in the book that it happened to be a kind of a sort of fortuitous time because uh, this was in 2007. And uh, these new sequencing machines, uh, these new very high throughput sequencing machines were just becoming uh, available And it meant that there was a huge amount of data that this lab suddenly had access to, um, which they perhaps hadn't had access to uh, six months even before. Uh, And that was lucky for me because uh, what it meant was they had lots and lots of possible, lots of new questions. And the the somebody coming from outside who really didn't know very much, but perhaps knew a little bit, this, this professor, this PI in this lab was willing to say, sure, here's a here's a project, here's a question that, um, you know, we have nobody – we have this question, but we have nobody to work on it. Um, go ahead. You know, it doesn't matter if you fail. It's no, nothing to us. Nobody's working on this question anyway. Um, go ahead. And, uh, you know, that, that was – Amazingly generous. Um, this was Chris Burgess lab at, at MIT, and that was very generous of him to allow me to do that. But also I think uh, you know, it was, I was in a sort of fortuitous uh, sort of place and, and time um, to be able to do that. Um, so that was kind of the first uh, part of the field work that I did in that lab at, at MIT, which was a computational biology lab uh, essentially. And What happened there was I basically got my own project, um, uh, and and, uh, they said, go ahead, work on this problem, and I did, and, uh, you know, at the end of my uh, time there, I presented in the lab meeting what I found out, um, and, uh, you know... uh, which was sort of normal thing to do, uh, for everybody in the lab. So, you know, I mean, I really was a kind of participant in, um, in that space. And, um, that was both extremely fun, um, getting to know those people in the lab, some of them I'm still friends with, um, but also, um, (laughs) incredibly frustrating at times. Uh, I realized that I was, Probably happy that I didn't actually ever become a scientist because <laughs> <laughs> lab work is difficult. I mean, some days I would, you know, be working on a problem and feel like I'd solved it, um, some sort of coding problem, and uh, feel like I'd solved it. Go home, you know, really very happy with myself, and next day come in find that actually, in fact, it didn't work, and sort of realize i'd have to spend another. These few days trying to figure out what was wrong with it. incredibly frustrating um, process. so um, yeah, so that was that was the first part of my field work. Um, I then subsequently uh, managed to spend some time um, in the Broad Institute, um, which is basically across the road from MIT in their uh, sequencing center, um, also working with a small group there that were um, working on protein informatics. Uh, and again, did some sort of did some some work with them, helping them to build some sort of simple database systems that they were um, that they were setting up, and that actually resulted in them. Uh, crediting me on a paper that they published which was which was which was kind of, nice of them. Um yeah so uh, right so trying to be really as involved in the, the work uh, as I could and um, then the final piece of field work was at the European bioinformatics Institute which is uh, just outside of Cambridge in uh, the UK um, so I spent some time uh, there as well um, they're less Actually, I would say less actually involved in their uh, work for various reasons, um, uh, but uh, very closely sort of observing uh, some of the sort of processes that they go through to maintain some of their and update some of their databases. Um, so yeah, that gives you <laughs> gives you a, a sort of broad sense of, of the kinds of things I was doing in the field. There.
1: Great, thank you so much. So as we get into the book, um, into really the meat of the book itself, I'll set the stage for listeners so that they can have a sense of where we're going. So you've already mentioned that at the beginning of the story, um, this starts ultimately with its roots in physics. And the, the introduction takes us through the general argument and the arc of this story. So broadly speaking, as biology becomes a big science, it's experiencing many of the same kinds of changes that physics went through in the mid-20th century, and these are largely driven by by the computerization of biological work and knowledge. You show in the book, and you set this out at the beginning, that at the center of many of these changes are data. Data determine what can and can't be done in biology, and early on in the conclusion, or in the introduction and then in the conclusion, you know that the book is going to follow the data to find out where biology has been and where it's going. So it's really interesting in that sense ultimately the book is going to show that the use of computers in biology actually create and have created new epistemic things. And you specifically um, then take us into, by the end of the book, but also sprinkled throughout the, um, the body of it, the notion of a genome as a disordered object, as a kind of object that emerges in this context that specifically um, out of sequence, and this is where part of the title comes from, and this is a kind of object that's allowed computers to take on such importance in biological work through the use of statistical and computational methods, and so this is going to be um, part of the story that we're going to be exploring for the rest of our time today. Now, the book starts out with, with two chapters that look at the introduction of computers into biology, and it's also a kind of ontological and epistemic exploration of what that's meant and how that's transformed the kind of thing biology is, the kind of people biologists are, and the kind of work that biological work constitutes. So it's a really sophisticated and really, really interesting story. Chapter one explores how and why biologists began to integrate computers into their practices in the nineteen 1980s in the first place, and it focuses on two case studies, that of Walter Goad, a physicist who is related to the origin of GenBank, and and we got into that, and also James Austell, a PhD student in biology at Harvard in the 1980s. Okay, so, um, so and now I'm gonna uh, shut up and step back and let you do the talking, but this just kind of sets the stage. So, one of the really thing, interesting things that happens in the course of your describing these case studies early on in the book is that you're showing that the cases depend not on adapting computers to biology but instead you're arguing that what's happening is that biology is adapting to the kinds of problems that computers can solve. This seems like a really important argument um, that's early on in this book that is going to become really important for our our understanding the arguments to follow. So can you talk about that part of what's going on here, the importance of our understanding that biology is actually adapting to computers and not just the other way around?
0: Right. So, yeah, I mean, so there is... Um, a kind of what I would say, a longer history of computers uh, in biology. I mean, in fact, uh, right from the beginning um, of you know the invention of the digital electronic computer, people were thinking about ways to apply them uh, to to biology, um, and it, you know, what Joseph November has written. Um, uh, quite a lot about the period sort of between World War Two and sort of, let's say 1970, um, in which there were all kinds of attempts to do that, to sort of uh, both I think adapt the computer to biology and perhaps also to some extent adapt um, uh, computing to the other way around. Um, but uh, my sense is that even at the end of the 1970s, I mean, there were actually very, very few people um, who, in biology who were really using uh, computers. Uh, very few people uh, who took them seriously as, as an instrument. And that's really what the, the case study that you mentioned about um, uh, Jim Ostell, James Ostell, is really about that. It gives a, sense of, um, gives a sense of how kind of out there it was, even in the 1980s, to be using a computer to do biology. And... Um, You know, the story is really about how he couldn't get his PhD from Harvard. Um, He did all this very fundamental um, work in what we now call computational biology or bioinformatics. Um, But basically, his committee would not give him a degree uh, until he showed that it actually was really biology, uh, in a sense. Um, So there was this real sense that it, it, it was not really something that biologists did. Um, perhaps it was a kind of useful tool that you uh, might use for, you know, in the way anybody would use it, right? You could add up some, you can use it for data processing, right? Use a spreadsheet or something like that. Uh, but it wasn't really fundamental. So I think, um, you know, what I'm my sense of one of the things that changed here is really sequences, right? Um, And I think that um, one of the things that we that historians of biology in the 20th century have uh, paid a lot of attention to is the growth in the importance of certainly the gene, um, but also the thing that (laughs) the sort of molecules that uh, molecules underlying this, which is DNA, right? And um, DNA sequence. Um, And so one of the sort of key aspects of the argument here is actually that computers, the computerization of biology plays a role in this uh, transition to you know, the sort of growing importance of sequence in in biology, and the reason that it does that is because I think that there is a kind of uh, there's a kind of meshing in perhaps the late nineteen seventies or early nineteen eighties of the sort of suddenly the new ability to sequence DNA rapidly uh, with the computer as an object that can hold, store, process, manage, analyze all this new data. And these two things sort of, are, in a sense, are a natural fit for one another. That's one way to put it. Um, they Suddenly it becomes obvious to people like Goad that these two things can can kind of that can kind of work together. I think there's a kind of uh, a sort of feedback in a sense between the kind of growth of sequence uh, and the growth of the use of computers. Right. I mean, if you have no way to store, search, analyze all of these DNA sequences that are being uh, that are being produced, then they're absolutely useless. Right. Uh, so what the computer provides is a way. To actually begin to uh, store, search, analyze. Um, and that in turn creates a demand for even more sequence, right? And so there's a kind of there's a kind of accelerating kind of loop here between the technology, which is obviously improving the algorithms, which are improving, and the growth of sequence information um, and, and sequencing in general, that kind of builds even before. Uh, the Human Genome Project um, comes into play. Um, so that's, I guess, the sense in which um, I think that, you know, the the biology is sort of adapting to the computer, so to speak, um, that it is really being um, this sort of emphasis on sequence that sort of becomes so fundamental through the Human Genome Project, sure, but um, but also because there are computers available, um, and that they make such sense as a tool to manipulate DNA, um, that this is kind of this is kind of growth of kind of both at the same time. So that's that's what I see. That's how I see this kind of relationship um, playing out. Or that's how I see really the, the sort of trans, one of the fundamental transformations that that uh, that computers have affected in in
1: biology. Right. And one of the things that I think we're going to see, um, that I certainly saw later in the book and that we'll see later in the conversation is that se- the, the notion, the concept of se- sequences and sequentiality winds up taking on a really huge role in what's going on here, not only in terms of sequences as objects, but also in terms of sequencing as a way of thinking about information and objects in terms of relationships and in terms right. of, Right, moving through a process. So this winds up becoming, I think, epistemically really central to what's going on here. So by 1990, this new discipline of bioinformatics has emerged and is dealing with an increasing amount of sequence data. So chapter two looks at how computers have reoriented biology toward large-scale questions and statistical methods. And so, kind of, you know, in, in terms of uh, what you were discussing a little bit earlier, now you talk about this reorientation in terms of looking at both the spaces right now of bioinformatics, from offices to robo rooms to boardrooms, rooms and production lines and labs, but also the people of bioinformatics. So you show in this chapter that there are different kinds of people um, who are now working on this kind of, um, kind of project and in this kind of area. And you mentioned kind of, Because so much of the later part of the book is going to look at um, the importance of communication, right? the importance of movement among realms, I think it's really important in this chapter that you're also showing that that movement and communication isn't always perfect or unproblematic. And you look here at problems of communication among two kinds of groups that come into bioinformatics, both um, on the one hand, people who are trained in the life sciences, who've turned to computation to deal with large amounts of data, and then alternately those who come into bioinformatics from training in computer science, math, engineering, computational physics, and who've turned to biology to find new kinds of problems to work on. And they have Importantly, really distinct attitudes toward data as you're showing here. So, can you talk about that um, in terms of the, the people who are working on this and the negotiation between these different attitudes toward the, the central importance of data?
0: Yeah, right. So, yes, the, I mean, it's, it's, it's this is partly where the kind of field work part. Uh, It becomes important because, you know, one of the perhaps surprising things to me going into some of these labs was, yeah, the diversity of backgrounds that people uh, came from. Um, I met people that had come from backgrounds and even things like metallurgy, right? Um, Why are you working in a biology lab? But, you know, they had certain sets of skills that suddenly um, were needed brain suddenly needed. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, there's this really interesting kind of moment, I think, that occurs in the late 90s uh, as sort of suddenly there's a huge amount of data from the Human Genome Project, sequence data again, um, and there's all these kind of, uh, articles that come out in places like science and nature that say that are addressed to physicists and mathematicians and computer scientists. And they say, look at what's happening in biology. This is our chance. Uh, we have the tools, biology has the data. Let's go, let's go and sort of, uh, apply our knowledge and skills to these, uh, to this new kind of field. They need us in a sense, and we're going to be able to provide what they want. Um, and that, that happens to some extent. There's a, you know, a kind of rush, um, uh, into biology, uh, and the you know creation of uh, even of, uh, this sort of solidifies the creation of uh, bioinformatics and, and computational biology, um, but I think by the time that I was doing my field work, what was interesting about this was that um, it was sort of six to eight years sort of further on from that particular moment. And people were starting to look back and reflect on it a little bit and say uh, that... Yeah, it didn't really work out. Um, And the reason was exactly what you mentioned, that there had been a kind of uh, mismatch or a kind of not exactly a communication breakdown, but a a sort of lack of ability to see things on the same terms, I guess, between people who were trained in biology and people who uh, were trained in mathematics, computer science, statistics. Um, And That There's a sense now, I think, that a lot of the work in bioinformatics, all of this early work that was done around the turn of the millennium, uh, was actually not very good, Um, that it led in all kinds of, uh, well, just uh, useless now directions which are now considered quite useless because uh, there were a whole lot of computational bio, there were a whole lot of computer scientists, mathematicians, who looked at all this data Uh, thought they knew what to do with it, um, but didn't know anything about uh, biology uh, and kind of just sort of ran it through their algorithms, uh, got something out at the end. And, uh, you know, I mean, I guess computer scientists uh, have a kind of saying, right, garbage in, garbage out. uh, And, you know, I think that was the sense of kind of what happened. Papers were published. uh, Nobody, there weren't very many people... Uh, who had even the qualifications to review review these papers? Um, there was just a lack of people with both expertise in comp- in computers and in biology, and so many of these papers did, in fact, get published. Although even even though now they're considered not to be great work, um, and the same is true of biologists. Biologists, um, you know, they knew a lot about biology, obviously, but didn't know much about. Computers and the tools—they didn't know how to use them. They didn't—they were doing things that perhaps were trying to solve problems that had been solved 20 years before in computer science, sort of reinventing the wheel kind of problem. Um, so, yeah, there was this—there um, was this absolutely—you know—these two kind of separate worlds that weren't that weren't coming together. And it was really, I think, only that there were a few people at this time who were beginning to be trained. In both uh, computer science, mathematics, and in biology. And I, really, I think people like the, the PI in the lab that I worked, Chris Burgess, is, is one of those people. He was sort of this almost first generation of people who have had serious training in uh, both mathematics and biology. It was taken seriously by both uh, communities, I think it's fair to say, and was able to start to bridge that um, divide. So that kind of sets the scene a little bit, I think. But, I mean, you really asked about a kind of different attitude to uh, data um, here. And I think partly this goes back to some, um, in a sense, it goes back to kind of the self-image almost of biologists, right? Biologists um, like to, well, they have an idea uh, that the the world is messy, that organisms are messy, that evolution is messy, uh, that, you know, things are exceptions rather than the rule, uh, and that their special knowledge about organisms and evolution and its quirks is going to be what's really important, right, um, what's really going to be valuable. Um, and uh, the, the world looks quite different to physicists and mathematicians and computer scientists who... Um, you know, this is this is not just me saying this. This is what they, you know, people told me when I asked them about this explicitly. They said, "We like to put things in neat boxes, right? We like to make rules. We like to generalize. Um, we like clean data, right? Um, we don't like things that are fuzzy. Uh, that's how we work. That's how that's how we like to see the world." And so, part of what was at the root of this difficulty um, between uh, you know the computer science people and the mathematicians on the one hand and the biologists on the other was this, as you say, fundamentally different attitude towards towards data, really. Um, and this kind of and I think this took a long time um, I think it's, it sort of was resolved over the course of, and perhaps hasn't been fully resolved but I think there are there have been some ways of kind of working this out, adapting to this over the kind of decade between, let's say, 1998 and, and 2008, in which, so I mentioned kind of joint training, um, but also uh, I think just through actually working together. Um, more and going back and forth between different spaces, um, uh, between sort of computer spaces, dry labs, uh, and biological spaces, wet labs, um, and sort of sort of refining that process. Um, I think there's a sense that more valuable, more interesting uh, uh, work has been now now being done.
1: So let's actually talk about those spaces because this gets us really nicely into the next few chapters. Um, Now, the phenomenon that we've just been talking about, this kind of an example of a kind of productive dyad, right? These people with different kinds of training who thus nevertheless come together. This is an example of many aspects of the book in which we see this kind of productive movement across poles of these dyads and so um, we've talked about people with different kinds of training, you talk about um, movement across wet and dry sorts of labs in biology, Um, just in the chapter we've been talking about you're contrasting in a discussion of a kind of obsession with speed and quantity of data and how that's generated new kinds of questions for biologists. Also a movement from a previous kinds of biology, which had focused on characterizing like a single entity, a single gene, a single pathway to, um, the other, another aspect of this diode, which is a kind of question um, that's more general, right? We also see then um, in the th- third and fourth chapter, looking uh, a look at movement across also different kinds of space, uh, virtual space and physical space. And you look in these chapters at how data and also people move among these spaces. So chapter three looks at spaces in which bioinformatics knowledge is produced. And it looks at how movement among these spaces really shapes the kind of knowledge that comes out of it. So you talk here in this really, really interesting case study about a division between producers and consumers of data, or rather bioinformatics and computational biology, and you look at how it's inscribed in the spaces of bioinformatic work by looking specifically at the example of the Broad Institute and the Broad Sequencing Center, um, which are in the same um, general area um, mm-hmm. of your fieldwork so can you talk a little bit about that example and specifically um, what are the consequences of that fieldwork for our understanding something central about what you're arguing in this part of the book
0: sure yeah right so again um, I mentioned I mentioned the bird before and I, again I think this was sort of fortuitous that I kind of arrived there uh, at a moment um, I guess I mean the bird it, it it emerged kind of from, from the Whitehead Institute, which had been part of MIT and played a central role in sequencing the Human Genome Project. Um, but in you know, sort of 2007, 2008, um, it was really sort of undergoing, um, well, perhaps not undergoing a transition, but there was, there was this moment at which um, it was really trying to position itself as kind of... Um, a sort of leading center for sequencing uh, in in the world, um, and also at the same time um, a sort of leading center for uh, research into human diseases. Um, That's its kind of uh, mission, uh, really. Um, And so there was this, you know, the story of this, uh, lab itself is a is a kind of interesting interesting one that I go into in some detail. It was the building itself was built as a kind of commercial uh, space, um, but then kind of adapted uh, to become a lab. And uh, it's you know I have some sort of images, a few images in the book of this very sort of. Clean, professional, uh, sort of impressive-looking building that's right opposite MIT uh, in in central in uh, Kendall Square in in Cambridge, and that this is kind of a, a showpiece in a sense for genomics. Um, still, still is um, that this is showing off to to the world uh, what genomics is supposed to be and sort of suggesting uh, it's you know, power to be able to uh, conquer human disease, right? That's the kind of, that's the way in which they talk. And that's, that's, that's the mission of the place. Um, what was interesting to me was that um, so much of this, I mean, this is a, essentially, this is genomics, right? And so much of genomics is based on sequencing again. Um, but, the sequencing part of this facility was actually about a ten-minute walk away, um, and rather than being in the middle of uh, Kendall Square opposite MIT, it was kind of tucked away into a more industrial part of um, East East Cambridge. Uh, uh, and I mentioned in the book that it's. Uh, it's, it's sort of neighbours uh, where I think at the time that I was there, a, a pipe manufacturer and a sort of utility station for a, some kind of telephone company, and for a while, a, a cab sort of depot where they, you know the cabs go at night, um, and uh, you know so you get a sense of what kind of a what kind of a neighbourhood. Uh, it's in it has a very very different kind of feeling it looks like uh, a warehouse essentially and in fact again the building had originally a different purpose it was a warehouse um, in fact for um, I think it was owned or uh, leased by uh, the Red Sox and they stored their uh, jerseys and other paraphernalia that they would uh, sell at Fenway Park, they would actually sell it, they would actually store all the material uh, in this building before it was converted into one of the world's you know largest uh, genomics sequencing uh, laboratories. Um, so that was an absolutely fascinating place to spend uh, time to sort of see the, just the, the sequencing in operation and while I was there, they were actually um, Transforming, they were actually shipping out all the old sequences that had been used to sequence the human genome. Many of them had played a part in that and uh, bringing in the new kind of next generation sequences um, that I mentioned already. Uh, but what I kind of focus on is this contrast between these two spaces, um, the kind of shiny biomedical... Uh, front, on the one hand, and the kind of uh, what I call a kind of backspace, tucked away in the industrial zone uh, uh, sequencing facility, uh, on the other hand, and I think that there's something remarkably kind of interesting about. Um, there's lots of things that you know which I could say about that, and um, uh, you know I think one of the interesting things is it sort of suggests. Uh, partly this kind of uh, partly about the kind of industrialization of biology, um, and this is one of the this is one of the places in which I think there's a again an explicit kind of analogy with what went on in physics in the nineteen fifties and sixties, right? The kind of scaling up of the lab uh, and the kind of uh, bringing in kind of people from all kinds of different disciplines to work in the lab. And that's what kind of a space the sequence, the broad sequencing center was. Um, It's not the kind of typical uh, biological uh, lab that you, that might've been typical in a university 20 or 30 years ago. Um, It is a kind of, um, it's a factory space in some sense, but with sequences in it. Um, And the people who work there, um, in a sense, they, um, you know, they, they operate it and uh, like a, like a factory. It's a production. It's a production line. Uh, it's a it's a production uh, facility for sequence. Um, and so, you know, one, so that I say a lot in the book about how this is, you know, about automation and what role the computer plays in this um, in this sort of organization. This new kind of organization of the lab. Um, but also, I think it, it does point to a, a kind of interesting division of labor, this, this tension in the space or this difference in the space between um, this, this shiny lab and this sort of lab in, in the back streets, um, points to a kind of division of labor between people who, all of them, I think we have to say, are doing biology in some sense, very much participating in this project of genomics. Um, but they're participating in in very very different kinds of ways, right? The person who's in this in this factory for sequence, um, they're working in highly automated, highly routine, uh, you know, a sort of almost tailorist kind of uh, system uh, in, to produce this, and it's a very centralized facility. They still sequence a huge. Uh, you know, a very large percentage of all the sequence in the world. They get contracts from the NIH to sequence, you know, particularly huge amounts of sequence. That's how they get their money. Um, And on the other hand, so that's a very, this, this, you have this very centralized automated um, production line on the one hand, and then you have people who work in this other space um, who I think perhaps can conform more to the idea of, uh, the sort of scientist or even sort of scientist entrepreneur um, that, that, that we have, um, but that are also increasingly mobile, um, that uh, they are, in a sense, uh, there's a kind of decentralization or decentering. Those people could be doing biology now uh, sitting on a beach in Thailand with their laptop, There's nothing to stop them accessing the public databases of various genomes, doing their their software installed on their computer. They can be writing code. uh, Anywhere with an internet connection now, you can do biology. And so I think um, one of the sort of interesting long-term trends here is this kind of centralization of certain sort of lab work, Versus the kind of decentralisation of this other kind of uh, of this other kind of biological work, and an increasing split between these two.
1: Thank you so much. Now, as we move from this to the next chapter, and I won't ask you to talk too much about this purely, purely in the interest of time, um, but I do want to mention it um, because it's a really fascinating chapter. So after looking at the physical spaces of bioinformatics, you take us into the virtual spaces of bioinformatics work and pay close attention to how these virtual spaces are arranged, who has access to them, and how people interact with them. So the first part of this chapter looks at how Biology becomes virtual, and you look and you take us through and look at and consider how material samples become data as they pass through the sequencing pipeline, and the language of pipeline becomes really important to this. Now, I do want to um, ask you just a little bit about the second part of the chapter because it was one of my favorite um, parts of the book, and it's really fascinating. This is a part that looks at how biology becomes data by producing ontologies. Um, mm-hmm. the ontologies are. The- This is meant in a very particular kind of a way um, in part of a book. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Because it also, um, it makes this story part of the history of language, um, the history of dictionaries in this really fascinating way. Um, So yeah, what what are ontologies doing here?
0: Yeah. So ontologies have a a very specific meaning uh, in in biology and genomics nowadays. Um, So, Yeah, I mean, this was an idea that again came out of the genome projects uh, in, and not so much the human genome project, but the mouse genome project, the fly genome project, uh, the worm genome project in the nineteen nineties, and really the idea was that there was a kind of problem of language in biology. This was what this is the way in which biologists talked about it. That so people were gathering all this sequence data. And all this other data about uh, about organisms, uh, and uh, they were uh, putting it into databases, which would be uh, which had to be shared resources between many many people. And this was an increasingly global activity um, with many labs participating, especially in these um, you know, model organism databases that, that I mentioned, um, and. The problem is that there are many different ways of labeling uh, objects, biological objects, right? Even um, even sort of trivial examples like the name of an organism, right? Um, do you write in the database entry is this a gene for Homo sapiens? You might write that, or you might write uh, H dot sapiens, right? Um, or you might write H underscore sapiens, right? Uh, or you, you know, there's a variety of possibilities of ways of even entering something like the name of a species, let alone the name of a gene, let alone the part of a cell uh, which you extracted a particular sample from, let alone uh, the time of the cell cycle in which you obtained your sample. So there's a range of factors, um, and biologists felt that if they were going to be able to get the most out of their databases that what they had to do was come up with a kind of standardized language. Um, And uh, so uh, they called these ontologies, uh, bio-ontologies sometimes. uh, And the idea was to build a kind of complete set of terms um, that would describe Organisms essentially, uh, and to try to kind of, uh, in a sense, uh, police, um, and that's probably uh, maybe a little bit too strong of a word, but uh, to try to to try to make people uh, give them incentives to conform to using this language, right? Partly, uh, and this is very much related to the idea of sharing data. Right, sharing data is now. Uh, you know, become a huge part of all kinds of science, right? This is something that's considered to have come out of the Human Genome Project and out of biology to some extent, this sort of uh, uh, imperative to share data, Um, and, you know, now it's required by many grants, right, that you uh, tell you know, say how you're going to share the data. But data is only, you know, it's only worth sharing data if it can be used by other people, right? And so this was, this on, these ontologies were mechanisms for trying to sort of make, get the most out of this uh, information, right? If everyone used the same terms, uh, then it was clear that the gene that this person sequenced in a mouse was equivalent to this, the gene that this person sequenced in a human, and now we can compare them. Um, so, sort of trivial examples like that. Um, one of the main things people do with things like uh, gene ontology, which is um, one of the main main ones that's used in bioinformatics, is search for the kind of enrichment of words. So, say you, you say you um, you have a sample of two hundred genes um, that you have that you've discovered. Um, that seem to be associated with, say, liver cancer or something like this, um, then what you can do is take all those genes and do a kind of gene ontology uh, enrichment search. And what that means is maybe out of those 200 genes that you found that seem to be associated with cancer, maybe 80 of them seem to have something to do with um, cell growth, right? That would be probably a fairly obvious one, right? So that suggests then, okay, if everyone, if all of these genes have something to do with cell growth, um, because now you know this because everyone's labeled their genes in the in the same way, um, then suddenly you have, this is supposed to be telling you something about um, what's going on with this cancer, right? That there's, there's some link between all these genes and cell growth, and that can kind of help us, that gives us some kind of new knowledge about um, what's going on with this with this disease, right? <laughs> so that's how these things are. That's how these things are supposed to work. Okay.
1: So this is. I mean, the there are let's see, three more chapters in the book. And I mentioned this for listeners because I want to emphasize how much really interesting stuff is going on in these chapters and how much I would love to talk with you for like three more hours um, about all of them. We don't have that time, but I want to at least just um, give a sense of what's going on here and just ask you about a couple of things. Because yeah. one of the things that you just mentioned, um, the importance of linkages, this is really a theme that comes up throughout the rest of the book. So the, ch- the fifth chapter... Traces linkages or relationships by looking at how data become biological knowledge um, in the context of databases. And you're arguing here that databases don't just or, don't just collect. Knowledge. Instead, they order biological materials, and this becomes really central, right? It becomes a way of emphasizing specific relationships or linkages among specific objects. And you take us through a history of databases here that shows how this comes about. So first, um, the the stage of flat file databases and then relational databases in the 80s and 90s and then federated databases of the post-genomic era. So there's this transition in a kind of capsule history of this. But you're showing here And this gets to the title of the book, and it gets to this theme of linkages and relationships. The databases allow objects, as you put it, to be constituted out of sequence, and, or in other words, brought into new relationships with one another that don't necessarily um, reflect the relationships they have in cells. So again, and my, my cat is scratching the wall in emphasis of how important this seemed to her as well. So if you hear that, that's what's happening. She's saying, meow, scratch relationships. This seems key. Um, So this is, this seems to be actually a really important theme in the book. So do you, um, would you talk a little bit about that as we kind of um, come to the uh, end-ish of our time, the importance of databases and allowing this kind of renewed relationality and why is that so important here?
0: Yeah. I mean, in a sense, this is, (laughs) this is the kind of uh, apotheosis in some sense, right? Where does the data go? I mean, I sort of, Follow the data and where does the data go? Well, one obvious place that it goes is into databases, right? So um that's really in a sense gonna be very important for what I'm what I'm trying to do here. And yeah, I mean my this is central to my sort of claim here that that computers make a difference to biological knowledge and specifically Databases make a difference to biological knowledge, and I, you know, I think that I think that there's actually much more work to be done on this topic. I mean, I've given kind of one example here, that being a kind of well, fairly well-known example of GenBank, and thinking about how that uh, particular database uh, structures knowledge and structures relationships between biological objects, and how that has epistemic implications. Um, uh, and I think showing over time how the kind of, there's a kind of um, sort of mapping between how ideas in biology change and how the structure of the database changes and um, sort of showing uh, the three stages that you mentioned, flat file, relational database, federated databases, and it gets at this sense of changes in biological knowledge being linked very closely to these changes, um, changes in uh, how how we, how we of structured databases. Um, but I think, you no. Know, the one of the kind of things that comes out of this, especially when we get to kind of the sort of federated, the sort of end of this story, um, what does this mean for how we think about biological objects, um, is it is, is a kind of transition from, and here we get to the title, thinking about from thinking of the genome or, uh, you know, chromosomes or genes or whatever as kind of linear objects um, as sort of something that exists on a kind of long string, right? There's a there's a, there's a sort of string uh, and our job in the Human Genome Project was to read that long string and put them all in the right order and that then the kind of task would be sort of over in a sense, right? That we would just have to read, read them off, right? Uh, read off the elements in order, right? Um, and I think there's something about know this sort of language of of computers and, um, and that sort of affected that that kind of an idea, right? That it comes from computing. That computer programs work in this way. That kind of linear in a certain sense, right? Um, computer code is linear. But I think there's something there's something else that's happens with these sort of, within genomics recently, and that I think has been sort of we can see this in these kind of new. Uh, forms of database structures, that what databases seem to allow now is kind of multiplicity, things going in, things being linked across all kinds of organisms, right? Um, Things uh, being linked from different parts of the genome, right? The genes that are important for uh, height might be, you know, they're not all next to one another on chromosome 8, right? There's one on chromosome 8 and on chromosome 16, and you know, um, and you know, and 80 more, right? Um, that that are out there, and that the important thing, or the task, the central task for biology in the kind of post-genomic era is to find out what those linkages are, right? To discover those linkages, and that's really what these what databases are, that's the kind of That's what they're trying to do, in a sense. That's what they allow us to see. That's what they allow biologists to see, see these kind of networked relationships between different parts of the genome and and, and not just the genome, but all, you know, the kind of metagenome, right, Um, in a sense, all the different small molecules, proteins. Now, uh, you know, all of these different kinds of, you know, Biological parts that kind of integrated through databases. Um, that this is the vision for what has to come, kind of next, right? And that is still being, I think, um, worked out. And I think, and this, you know, um, my final chapter in the book is about visualization and about how some of this stuff ends up in uh, pictures. And I think the visual aspect of this is is important for seeing this. I mean, there are these amazing images now, uh, things like circos. Um, which is a kind of image that the set of images that are being, I mean, it's a software tool for producing images that show these massive cross linking of, of the genome, right? You see these sort of dramatic kind of, and very beautiful sometimes images of, you know, showing all the kind of cross links between uh, genes that are associated with whatever uh, leads across different parts of, and these images actually are sort of telling us about, um, you know, particular diseases or particular traits, and how they and what they kind of how they how they work, but they're also telling us something about what the genome now looks like. They, it looks like this multiply connected, kind of networked kind of object. And I think that the computer and databases have had a lot to do with helping us to think uh, in this way.
1: Great. And so I want to just emphasize for listeners, um, this, this next chapter that you mentioned, that's all about images and showing the use of computers in biology, actually enabling a new way of seeing, literally, and you take us through the role of images in translating between biology and computing. You take us through heat maps, um, the mapping metaphor, translation metaphor. It's a really, really beautiful chapter that also, as many of the chapters do, links what you're doing here and links bioinformatics to a much larger um, potentially transdisciplinary story. um, Here, not just about language and translation and metaphor, but also about visual culture and the transformative um, elements of visual culture specifically. So, um, again, it's just one of many cases where here art historians or historians of visual culture, the image, who don't necessarily think of themselves as fundamentally inherently interested in the history of biology or bioinformatics um, have a lot here that I think um, would be of really deep interest and also of really wide interest. Now, after that chapter, at the very end of the book, you bring us into a conclusion that shows how biology is in the midst of this fundamental transformation thanks to computing, but also... um considers how the field might look in the future and one of the things that you're arguing here is that bioinformatics this field that we've spent a book now learning about and, and really beautifully getting the texture of in terms of its movements and its processes and its objects is likely to disappear um so can you talk a little bit about that uh, very provocative very interesting end of this story where you're suggesting that right. this field uh, may not exist anymore in the future
0: right um Yeah, so that's a kind of, yes, right, I frame it in a kind of deliberately provocative way. I mean, my my argument, again, goes back to, you know, what I talked about right at the beginning, which is physics, right? There's no such thing as phys informatics. right? Um, uh, We just use computers for physics all the time. It's not considered something that's especially uh, separate from physics or even usually, I mean, I guess somebody could say they did computational physics, but that... Usually, uh, there's plenty of people who would just say they do physics, but use do all their work in front of a computer, right? Um, and so it's just considered to be a fundamental and natural part of doing physics nowadays. And I, that's the sense in which I think that, or in which I make a kind of bold prediction that uh, bioinformatics will kind of disappear. That it will become such a ubiquitous part of biological work and. So fundamental to the way in which we do bio, biological work, but also the way in which we think about organisms, genes, genomes, that it will kind of disappear from from notice and disappear, perhaps ultimately from from the language. Um, and I, you know, I mean, I think that that uh, that suggests um, also some some ideas about. How our how our view of um, genomes has actually changed as well. That um, that this is that this is fundamentally about also about the kind of uh, increasing visibility of or increasing centrality of again sequence genes genomes uh, and all the things that go kind of along with them now. Um, all this kind of metagenomic stuff, but still kind of hitched onto the genome in some sense. Um, that this is kind of going to become in- increasingly central uh, to biological work, and that the computer is in- indispensable uh, for doing that work. Um, and and so it will, you know, this term may just may just become obsolete.
1: Well, Hallam, I've already um, you've already let me take up a lot of your Saturday morning, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Um, but we are at the end of our conversations, so that I can respect that, and um, we are, though not at the end of the potential topics to talk about it's an extraordinarily rich book. There's a ton here that we didn't have a chance um, to, no, thank you that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular or anything specific that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book?
0: Yeah. I mean, Actually, the only thing that's given that we were talking about visualization and this connection to thinking about art history or uh, visual culture, um, if people are intrigued by the cover of the book, um, it has what I think is quite a striking and and beautiful image uh, on it, and people may wonder where that came from. So that's actually linked to this story of um, this visualization. Um, At the time, I was at the... Broad Institute, I spoke a lot with um, and uh, really be- became friends with um, the artist-in-residence. The Broad had an artist-in-residence uh, while I was there, and um, his name is Daniel Cohen. He, he uh, uh, lives in New York, works in a studio in Brooklyn, um, and uh, his his sort of mandate at the, at the at the Broad was to help scientists to think in kind of new visual ways, think about new out-of-the-box, off-the-wall kind of ways to to see these new relationships between uh, different objects that they were studying, right? So, so to to the idea was that by allowing them to explore new kind of visual ideas, they might actually come to new biological discoveries about the way these different aspects or different objects related to one another. To sort of, there was a sort of problem of, sort of all these different high, highly, you know, high, high dimensional objects and how to relate them to one another in a way that made sense. And the artist's, uh, the artists job um, was to sort of help biologists think through this um, by sort of teaching them about how to see in new ways and so um, as part of that work, um, as part of that kind of collaboration that he had, he produced what he called these high-throughput drawings, um, an analogy here with sort of high-throughput sequencing. Uh, and so that's what's actually on the cover of the book, one of uh, Daniel Cohen's, uh high-throughput uh, drawings, which uh, you know, I think is a great kind of, um, yeah, it's a great cover. I'm happy that that is the cover of my book.
1: That is Awesome. I love that. Um, and it's and I also love the cover of the book. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book. As I've already mentioned, um, I just I really, really loved it. And I think it's just a very, very rich story that touches on so many different kinds of questions, um, both within and beyond the history of biology and the history of computing. What's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you? And where are you going from here?
0: Yeah, so... <laughs> Lots of things. Lots of exciting things. Two, two really exciting things in particular. One is that um, as you and some of your listeners may know, there is an increasing interest in uh, data and the history of data and the history, or if there is a history, of big data. Um, you know, Big data is a very hot topic in a sense. Um, and uh, this book uh, obviously has some things to say about that. Um, I think Biology is one of the first, um, one of the first places in which there is a lot of data, um, and so there's a kind of um, somewhat even some some of these tools that are now used more and more for all kinds of things um, in this and called big data. Actually, you know, sort of cut their teeth on biological data, um, and so one of the things that I'm exploring is sort of teasing out the implications uh, of. Um, my findings in the book for thinking about big data and trying to make those a little bit more explicit um, and so that 's a kind of very exciting project seeing how I can sort of expand this the kind of um, some of the ideas in this book to think about data more generally and following the data and sort of cultures of data uh, and especially around um, big data so that's that's one kind of exciting way in which this uh, these ideas are developing uh, the other one is that um, uh uh, I'm not sure if you, you mentioned that I'm I'm in I'm in Singapore. Uh, I live in Singapore, teach in Singapore, um, and so I'm interested also in thinking about how some of these topics, this kind of these kind of divisions of labor, um, different spaces of labs, plays out on a kind of more global scale, um, and thinking about you know, sort of the global relationships between this and uh, sort of centralization and decentralization of labs. What are lab spaces look like in Asia? What are they doing? How are they different? Um, and so beginning to do some field work here and particularly looking towards places like the BGI in Shenzhen in China um, uh, and sit, trying to um, understand a little bit more about what's going on there and relate it to some of the topics in the book.
1: Well, that's fabulous. Best of luck with that project or with those two projects as well. And I'll look forward to hopefully talking with you about those books when they come out. And thanks so much <laughs> um, for taking the time, Hallam. It was really a pleasure to talk with you and such a pleasure to read the book. Congratulations on that.
0: Thank you very much, Talala. It's my pleasure.
1: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.